0: Yo, thank you. Thank you again, Pastor Hyden. Uh Walk Church. It's an honor uh, to be here with y'all. So uh, I met Hyden, you know, years ago in Atlanta uh, through some church planning stuff. And uh, we've been yeah, friends for these past few years. And although this is my first time uh, being here at the church and seeing y'all, y'all don't know me, uh, but I know you. I pray for y'all. I love y'all. I was with Hyden when... This was an idea in his mind. And just to see what God has done is incredible. Haydn has been such an encouragement in my life. Y'all are blessed to have uh, the pastors that you do. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Honored to be here. All right. Uh, Mark chapter 14. So if y'all would turn with me there, starting in verse 32, I'm going to read it for us. Um, and I would ask if uh, when y'all get that, that y'all would stand as we read. The words will be uh, here on the screen. Um, and I'm going to start reading in Mark chapter 14, verse 32. Yep. All right. Yep. Yeah, yeah. We can go ahead and stand. There we go. All right. Uh, Mark chapter 14, starting on verse 32. I'm reading from the CSB um, and it reads like this. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane. And he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. He went a little farther, fell to the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again, he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. And again, he came and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. They didn't know what to say to him. Then he came a third time and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. Let's pray. Um, Our Father, we come to you as those that are needy. Uh, The room is divided. Uh, not into those that have need and those that don't, but those of us that are willing to, or those of us that are willing to admit our need, and those of us that aren't, Father. So I pray that you would convince all of us that our neediness is not a liability; it is an asset if we stand in proximity to somebody who has no needs but an abundance of willingness to help us. Would you remind us, God, that you are our very present help? In time of trouble it's in Jesus name we pray amen amen Amen. why don't y'all take your seats Uh, one of my favorite things to do in the entire world is to read so I wake up uh, every morning pretty early and I spend time reading just all types of books very broadly and widely and every so often as you read Uh, you stumble across a philosopher so brilliant and a quote so profound that it changes the way that you live your life. I came across one such quote not too long ago, and once you hear it, the profundity that's trapped in that little phrase, it's so compelling that you never go back. Once you hear it, you're shaped. All right, And the quote goes like this. Um, Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. The philosopher was Mike Tyson, all right? Uh, Mike, Tyson, Mike Tyson said this on the eve of this fight, all right? There's this big fight, Mike's getting ready to fight, and a reporter comes to him and says, Mike, what are you going to do about your opponent? He's big, he's strong, he's fast, he can move laterally from side to side. And what Mike says is this, oh, no, 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 li- listen, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. That Mike's point was this no, no, listen. Everybody thinks that they're stronger than they are until adversity connects with their jaw. And then they realize that they are not nearly as courageous or composed or put together as they think. Figuratively, I was punched in the mouth about eight and a half years ago. So here's the scene. Um, Eight and a half years ago, April 14th, 2015, I was in Orlando speaking at a conference. We were at dinner the night before I was getting ready to speak with a group of friends, and I start to get a bunch of phone calls from my mom. I send the first few to voicemail, but she keeps calling, so I pick it up, and it's like, yo, mom, what's up? And she's like, hey, I need to tell your brother something, but I can't get a hold of him. Can you help me to track him down? I figured my brother was ignoring my mom's phone calls the same way that I was. So I start to call around to friends. and I hear my godbrother tell me, yo, Sam passed out. And so I was like, oh, wake him up then if he passed out. Uh, but I heard wrong. Stephen didn't say Sam passed out. He said Sam passed away. 32 years old, in the best shape of his life, married, had three kids, five, three, and one. And just suddenly, no cause of death, he passed away. And let me tell you, that was the second biggest surprise of my life. The first biggest surprise of my life was how quickly my faith crumbled in the weeks that came. April fourteenth, 2015, my brother died. June seventh, 2015, we planted our church in the west end of Atlanta. I'm 39 years old right now. I've spent the past 16 years of my life pastoring. All I've done in my adult life is this, stand in front of people on stages or in their homes and share with them about the goodness, the wisdom, the kindness, the graciousness of God, and everything that I believed about God crumbled in an instant. And it was shocking. I started to read and C.S. Lewis is going to say this as he's reflecting on the death of his wife. He said, when it comes to faith, most of us tend to think that our faith is some big, strong temple. When adversity hits, we realize that our faith is nothing more than a house of cards, easily foldable. Basically, what he's saying is, no, 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 everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And so I'm standing up here just to tell you and maybe warn some of you um, If you haven't faced adversity of that sort, it's not because you've dodged it. You cannot outrun it any more than a dog can outrun its tail. You just haven't faced it yet. But it is on its way. That adversity is being Amazon Prime to your front doorstep as we speak. And when those tidal waves of adversity come, there is not a person in this room that feels like an Olympic swimmer. Everything, everybody in here does all that we can just to barely stay afloat. And the reason why I bring that up as the most important thing that you and I can do is because we live in a world where we're constantly on our phone. And as we're scrolling up with our thumbs, we're led to believe that the best thing that we can do in the present is to plan and daydream about potential prosperity that may come in the future instead of preparing for the guaranteed inevitable adversity that is finding its way to us. The reason why it's so important for you and I to prepare is not just for us to maintain our faith, it's because we have to realize that we don't live in a vacuum, all right? If you are a teacher, a pastor, an employer, a parent, an older sibling, an older friend, here's one thing that you need to learn about leadership. What you do in moderation, the people that follow you will do in excess. So it's this. People in your life have a front row seat. To how you deal with adversity and the way that you deal with it will forever shape how they deal with hard times and how they look to and treat God in the midst of those hard times. So it's important, it's vital, it is incumbent on all of us to instead of daydreaming about prosperity to prepare for the inevitable adversity that will come. And Mark chapter 14 Helps us learn how to prepare. So that's where we're gonna spend the bulk of our time on. All right, we read about Jesus' prayer in the garden, and that's gonna be the bulk, but this story is sandwiched in between two other pieces of context. All right, it's sandwiched between the Last Supper, which is um, the disciples have an aspiration for how they're gonna stand strong for Christ. And it's sandwiched in between that and the betrayal in in the garden. So it's sandwiched between an aspiration to stand tall and an actual opportunity for them to stand tall. Here's a little bit of the context. At the Last Supper, Jesus basically looks at his disciples and he gives them an invitation to be weak. Basically, as they're breaking the bread and they drink the cup, Jesus says to them in more words than this, Forget about living up to my standards. You're not even going to live up to your own standards. Y'all think that y'all are going to stand strong, but every one of you are going to turn your back on me. But he did not say it as an indictment or an insult. He said it as an invitation to be weak. What he's saying is this. I know the worst about you that you don't even know about yourself. That when you discover it about yourself, you're going to be disillusioned and driven to despair. I'm letting you know ahead of time that I know the worst about you so that when it happens, you can be reminded that no discovery about your sin is going to disillusion God the way that you are so often disillusioned about yourself and quench his determination to bless you. Jesus is providing them this invitation to be weak. But although Jesus gives them the invitation Uh, Peter, James, and John don't return the RSVP. Peter says, uh, Jesus, you can keep your prayers. I've got my resolve. James and John send their mom to say, yo, Jesus, when you ride into glory, do you mind if James and John ride shotgun? And Jesus tells them, can y'all drink of this? Y'all don't know the adversity I'm about to go through. And they say, yo, Jesus, we're down. We're going to stand tall. And Jesus says, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. So what Jesus is going to do is he's going to demonstrate now where true power comes from. Do you know why? Because demonstration is often the greatest definer of terms. When it comes to the word hot, a red stove And a curious hand is going to be a better definer of the word hot than a dictionary. When it comes to the power of prayer, Jesus's demonstration is going to be the best definer of the strength and power that comes from prayer. He's done preaching. He's going to show them. And that's where we find ourselves in Mark chapter 14, verse 32. All right, we're going to take this in three parts. All right, let's think of it like we're trying to paint a wall. When, when you paint a wall, the first thing that you throw up is the primer. The primer is not the paint. The primer is just the layer that goes on that gets the wall ready to receive the paint. All right, so point one is going to be the primer. Point two is going to be the paint. That's the main thing. And then after you paint the wall, you're going to proceed out of the room. All right, primer, paint, and procession. The very first one is this. Primer is this. Um, you are not as strong as you think that you are. And that's going to be some of the best news that you're going to hear all day. You are not as strong as you think that you are. Let's start here. All right. It says this. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane. Let's stop there at that word. Gethsemane literally means olive press. That's what the word means. So the oil back in this day that was valuable, that was used to anoint sacrifices and kings and priests, that oil came from olives. But that precious oil only came after the olives went under a time of intense pressure. So you don't get the good stuff without the hard stuff. Jesus leads them into a place where he's trying to help them and us see everything that feels bad to you isn't bad for you. Sometimes we find ourselves under intense pressure because we've disobeyed and we've ran away from God. Sometimes we find ourselves in the most frustrating scenarios not because we've run away from jesus but because we followed him and sometimes following jesus means being led into very very hard times but hard doesn't have to mean hopeless if we're confident that something's good's going to come from out of that all right look at who he takes with them and he told his disciples sit here while i pray and look he took peter james and john with him that's an interesting point in this story Why take those three? He had 12. Why those three? Because so far in the gospel of Mark, those three are the ones that have professed that they're stronger than the rest. They live as if they've been cut from a different cloth. I didn't get the that I wanted. So let me see if I can explain it to you like this. Uh, My daughter, is uh, six and a half years old right now. When my daughter was born, she was born early, at 30 weeks. So she was three and a half pounds when she was born. I could hold her in one hand like this. She was in the NICU for close to a month. Um, She had to learn to regulate her body temperature on her own. She was fed through tubes. She had to learn how to eat on her own. Um, And she had to learn how to breathe on her own. Right? Before we could bring her home, she had to do all those things, and she had to gain weight and get to four pounds because that was the smallest that she could weigh for the smallest car seat that we could find. So even when we brought her home at four pounds, right, the car seat swallowed her up. So we bring her home. My wife's nephew, Jackson, comes over to the crib. Jackson is two years old at the time. Jackson comes over to her uh, car seat, bends down on his knees like this, and Jackson starts to talk to her. Not in his two-year-old voice, but he starts to talk to her how he thinks that a baby would talk, right? Ah, see, y'all said, oh, y'all thought it was cute. I thought it was condescending. So I pulled Jackson off to the (laughs) side, and I said, yo, Jackson, fam, you still eat paste. Jackson, uh, Your subject-verb agreement is atrocious, and I just start to go on and on and on and just help him see, no, no, Jackson, you think you're cut from a different cloth than her. You think that you are not in fact a baby, but you are just as needy and dependent as she is, but it's not a bad thing because you have loving parents that are gonna provide for your need. Don't try to be something that you're not. Enjoy being a needy baby that's next to somebody that's going to provide for your needs. Jesus pulls Peter, James, and John the same way and says, hey, y'all, I know you think you're cut from a different cloth, but let me help you see. You're not as strong as you think that you are. Stop pretending to be strong. Enjoy being needy next to a God that provides for all of your needs. Look at how, how it goes on. Look, he took Peter, James, and John with him, and look here, and he began to be deeply distressed and Trouble. All right. In a story, there's often a narrator. What a narrator does for you is the narrator gives you x-ray vision into what's going on in the minds and the hearts of the character of the story. So by the end of verse 33, do you know the only people that know that Jesus is distressed and troubled? Jesus knows. Mark knows. And you, the reader, knows. Peter, James, and John don't know. But look at what Jesus does with that. He said to them, I'm deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here with me and stay awake. This is fascinating because the son of God who has healed people that are lame, made them walk, opened the eyes of the blind, turned water into wine, calmed monsoons, knows that he's going to get up from the grave. And when it comes to this, He's not acting in front of his friends as if he's unafraid, unscared, or unmoved. While these people are professing their strength, Jesus is saying, y'all, this is weighing heavy on me. I'm not feeling strong. Jesus realizes what a lot of us don't, that people are often more impacted by the weakness that we share with them than they are by the wisdom that we try to hurl at them. If the son of God who was present with God at the creation of the world feels the freedom to tell people that he's feeling weak and afraid and distressed, why do you feel the need to be strong for everybody? Jesus didn't just come to teach you and I what God was like. Jesus came to teach you and I the blessings of being fully human. Maybe it's not. Maybe our severe loneliness doesn't come from the fact that we don't have friends Maybe it comes from the fact that we don't allow our friends to hear our deepest fears and concerns and weaknesses. Maybe we're surrounded by all the people that we need. Maybe the disconnect comes from the fact that we're trying to convince the people that are meant to support us that we do not need their support. We are sprained knees, refusing crutches. You are not as strong as you think that you are. And that's some of the best news that you're going to hear all day. Do you know why? Because once you realize that you're not as strong as you think that you are, you stop pretending and you start to tap into the source where true strength comes from. True strength comes from total and complete surrender. Jesus is going to help us see this. Look, we strengthen our hands for service to God by surrendering our hearts in prayer to God. True strength doesn't come from you and I trying to muster it up on the inside. True strength comes from you and I being honest with our weaknesses and saying, God, would you uphold and lift and support me? Look at how this text goes on. It says this. He went a little farther. Look at this. Fell to the ground physically as a sign of, I don't have the strength to hold myself up. And prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but you will. That prayer is so profound, because in that one prayer, you and I get an outline of all prayer. Prayer is always made up of at least two things, and those two things are this, confidence in God's ability and contentment with God's activity. Prayer is always these two things, confidence that God can do the impossible and content even if he doesn't do the impossible in the way that we want him to do the impossible. Prayer always starts with this, a deep and abiding belief that God can do the impossible. Where you don't have that, you don't pray. Prayer is not just saying that I have a problem. Prayer is saying I need to be rescued. Because when you need to be rescued, you admit I'm in a problem that I can't get out of myself. Prayer always begins with this deep and abiding belief. And unless we believe that God can do the impossible, we will not Pray, one of my favorite sets of novels to read are the Sherlock Holmes novels. They're written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle from the perspective of Sherlock's BFF, John Watson. John Watson don't solve no crimes. Sherlock solves all of the crimes, but John Watson chronicles what he does and there's this one time where there's an impossible case that comes through. John Watson writes, yo, this lady came through, she had an impossible scenario, and he writes these words where he says this, yo, I became so accustomed to Sherlock's invariable success, I always saw him win, all he did was win, 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 that the very thought of him failing had ceased to enter my mind. He's saying, I spent so much time with Sherlock, That when the impossible came to our front doorstep, I didn't wonder if he could do it. I was curious how he would solve this one. Listen, you and I live and we have God in these boxes. Our boxes expand when we see God do new things. God, I never thought that I could be free of this addiction, but you did it and now my box expands. God, I never thought I could smile after that grief, But but you did it and now my box expands God I never thought that you could pay the rent that I didn't know was going to come and God provides and our box Expands so our prayers get bigger and bigger and bigger Jesus didn't have any of those boxes So as he's praying he really believes that God can do the impossible. He's he said God if there's any other way God, I know you can make a detour. I know there's a way that I don't have to go to the cross. If there's any other way, do this. Like a professor I had in school said, he said it like this. Look, what God has done in the past is both a plan and a model of what he'll continue to do in the future, although he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. So what he's saying is, no, as Jesus is praying, he's saying, God, I know you can do the impossible. I've got step one, confidence in your ability. That's where all prayer starts, but I want you to hear this. Although prayer starts there, true peace is never found there. That if you say, God, I believe that you can do the impossible, and the only way that I'm ever going to be at peace is if you do the impossible, in the way that I want you to do the impossible in this particular scenario, you're never gonna find peace, but you're always gonna run head on into discontentment. Do you know the quickest way to discontentment? The quickest way to discontentment is for all of us to hold God hostage to an outcome that he's never promised. It's like waiting in a Vegas summer for a bus that's never coming. So Jesus says this, God, if there's any other way, I believe you can do the impossible. However, not my will, but yours be done. Even if you don't do the impossible in the way that I want you to, it's not going to throw my faith. There's another ingredient that comes here, and that's persistent. So it's not like Jesus just says these 23 words and jumps up and goes to the cross. Look here at verse 39. It says this, once again, he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. And again, he came and found them sleeping because they couldn't keep their eyes open. Verse 41, then he came a third time and he found them sleeping. So it seems as if he's praying the same prayer for a literal hour. And here's where you and I mess up we tend to think praying about the same things over and over and over is a lack of faith. I don't believe God, so I keep on asking him. And I want you to know this. Persistence in prayer is not a lack of faith. It is the surest presence of faith. It is a confidence, right, that this will not happen unless God does it. Once again, I didn't get the ums that I wanted, so let me tell you a story. (laughs) I've got a six-year-old daughter. Four years ago, I got an opportunity to speak in Orlando, and they said, "Hey, we'll fly out your family and we'll give you all Disney tickets." Um, I made the mistake of telling my two-year-old daughter that we were going to Disney in November. I told her in August. <laughs> "What do you think every hourly conversation was for 90 days? Dad are we going. 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 Dad, are we going? Dad huh? are we going right and she just keeps on now is her persistent asking a lack of faith no she knows that I made her a promise and I'm good on my word she's saying I also know that I won't get to that promised land apart from the intervention of my father so I'm going to continue to ask not because I disbelieve but because I have faith that he's actually going to do it. And I just want to know if now is the time we stop so soon. If you're praying and continuing to ask God for something, don't feel like a persistent asking is a lack of faith or don't feel like it's getting on his nerves. Persistent faith is the clearest. Don't stop. Keep persevering. Keep praying for that family member. Keep praying for that freedom. Keep praying for that change. Keep praying for that intervention. Keep praying for God's hand. And what you see in this story, Jesus is on his knees praying. The disciples are on their backs, sleeping. Do you remember how I told you this story was sandwiched in between an aspiration to stand tall for Christ and an actual event for them to stand tall for Christ? Well, this sandwich was built kind of like a vegan sandwich, right? Surrounded by promise with nothing but sadness and disappointment in the middle. (laughs) That what you find, They had aspirations to stand tall. They had an event, but they didn't come through. And you say, what was the difference? Why was Jesus able to persevere in the face of people that were after his life and the disciples were running away from people that weren't even chasing them? What did they do? Jesus was praying. They were sleeping. Jesus understood the true strength comes from total and complete surrender. If you think I'm making too much of that point, just read the rest of the story. Right? One of the things that makes prayer tough is that when we pray and ask God for things, God often doesn't audibly speak back to the majority of us. So we're confused. What does God want me to do? Do you know one way that God speaks clearly and unmistakably? Through providence through how things play out. So look here, verse 41, it says this. Then he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the time has come. See, the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. It's as if Jesus is praying, God, if there's any other way, take this cup away from me. Not my will, but yours be done. God, if there's any other way, not my will, but yours be done. God, if there's any other way, detour this thing. Not my will, but yours be done. It's as if he looks up, sees an angry mob coming to him with furrowed brows, pitchforks, and torches, and he looks at the disciples and says, yo, I guess God said no. But look at verse 42. He says, get up, Oh, uh, you miss that. Let's go see my betrayer is near. What he says is, no, 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 look, look, look. I'm so confident in God's goodness that even when I get a no, I realize I'm much safer in God's hands in the middle of adversity yeah. Yeah. than I am in my own hands elsewhere. Amen. Listen, so many of us tend to judge God's goodness by his answers to our prayers. If God says yes, then God is good. If God says no, then I'm not sure that God is good. Jesus judges the answers to prayers by God's goodness. God is good. So a yes is one way that God's gonna show that he's good. God is good. So a no is another way that God is going to show that he's good. So what you have is him so confident in God's plan and wisdom and grace that he's willing to say, hey, y'all, they're already coming. Let's cut the distance. Let's get this party started. And what is absolutely amazing is what transpires through the rest of the Gospels. We've all heard that Jesus came to die for our sins, and that's part of the story. It's not just that Jesus came to die for our sins. It's that Jesus came to die a particular kind of death for our sins that only existed in the history of the world for a short period of time because it was that shameful and that brutal. Crucifixion as it was done at those times only existed for a very, very short, short time. The telephone has been around longer than crucifixion was. So as Jesus comes to die this shameful death, it is agonizing. It's so agonizing that Romans wouldn't even crucify Romans because they're like, yo, fam, this is so bad. The amazing thing is, as you read through the Gospels, do you know where the Gospel writers paint Jesus in the most agony? Not on the cross, but in the garden on his knees. Look, read through all the rest of the gospel accounts. Every one of the gospels gives at least a third of their written words to the last week of Christ's life. The gospel of John gives half of its words to the last week of his life. And what you see is somebody that seems incredibly composed for unimaginable adversity. So he's beaten and he's flawed. He's carrying a cross. This did not come from Ikea where the edges are all sanded nice. It is splintered driving into his back. So much so that they got to get a random cat off the side of the street to pick it up. And he has enough composure to look at his mom crying and say, Hey, mom, John's going to take care of you. Yo, John, would you care for my mom? Caring for his mom on the way to the cross. While he is on the cross, listen, all of his last words on the cross matter. Because when you are crucified, when somebody's crucified, you don't die by losing blood. You die by choking. Your lungs fill up with blood. And that's how somebody dies on a cross. And on the cross, Jesus is not saving his breath. He's asking God to forgive people that aren't asking for forgiveness. He's using his final breath to reassure a repentant yet guilty criminal that he's going to be with him in paradise. And you ask, where does that strength come from? And where are the disciples? They are running away fearful from people that aren't chasing them. And Jesus has this incredible strength. Where does this strength come from? You look back at the garden and notice the difference. One spent their time surrendering their hearts to God in prayer while the others ran. That's where strength comes from. And I say that knowing that preaching about prayer can do this. Listening to sermons about prayer can lead you to feel very guilty about how you don't pray like you should. Preaching about prayer can make me feel like a hypocrite because I don't pray like I should. If you're type A in this crowd, you've probably already created a spreadsheet of how you're going to pray each day for the next week. And we tend to think of, all right, this is the routine. These are the things I'm going to put into practice. But what if I told you that's not how our prayer life grows? What if I told you that if you're struggling in prayer, the problem is not your routine. The problem is actually your belief in the resurrection. The way that you pray, more than the way that you do just about anything reaffirms or undermines your belief in the resurrection that Jesus actually got up from the grave. I didn't get the ooms that I want. Let me give you all the story. <laughs> I've been married for 16 years. Um, I still don't know where the measuring cups are at the crib. So there's times that I go to my wife and I say, yo, Chandra, where's the three fourths cup? I'm trying to make some pancakes. And uh, she'll say... We've been married for 16 years, and you still don't know where they are. And there's times I'm like, yo, that's a little spicy for me. So uh, I wait until after she's read her Bible so she's in a better mood. And so I'll say, hey, sweetheart, where's the three-fourths cup? Um, And she'll she'll respond with the words of Christ. And she'll say, "Um, have I been with you this long? And you still don't know where the three-fourths cup is. But then there's times where um, she'll say, John, what would you do if I weren't here? That's a rhetorical question. That's a trap, right? So, what I think is, well, if you weren't here, then I would actually have to do the hard work of looking for it myself. And if history's an indicator of the future, I'm gonna work really hard and I'm not gonna find it anyway. Why would I put myself through all that trouble? Well, I could just trouble you. I've I've been married 16 years, so I don't say it out loud. (laughs) What I do say to her is this, no, no, no. But sweetheart, you are here. If you weren't here, there would be a different conversation. But you are here. I'm needy. I'm standing in the presence of somebody who has what I need I pray that you would just help me. Listen, we talk about being changed all the time, and change is a process, and it absolutely is. One of the interesting things about the disciples is in all of the Gospels, people were after Jesus, not Peter, James, and John in them. But they were constantly scared. Then you turn over a couple of pages and 40 days after Jesus rose from the grave, you find yourself in the book of Acts. Now, the book of Acts is a different story because now people are after James and John and Peter and all them. And do you know what you find? A group of people that are not scared, but they're filled with power and composure. And you ask yourself, what changed? Here's a practical picture of what changed. Jesus dies and raises in Acts 1. And do you know what they do? Hey, y'all, let's gather. Let's pray. Let's see what God wants from us. Judas is gone. He betrayed him. He killed himself. He was the one that kept all their money, so they're probably broke at this time. Do you know what they say? Hey, y'all, let's pray and see what God wants from us. Acts 2, the church grows 3,000 people in a day, and these group of failures now have to shepherd and care for a small town. And do you know what they do? Hey, y'all, let's stop. Let's pray. Let's see what God wants from us. Acts 4, Peter and John get thrown into jail and beaten for preaching the gospel. And do you know what they do? Guess. They pray. Acts 6, the church is threatened to rip apart at the seams because ethnic tension is getting ready to threaten this church. And do you know what they do? They pray, and what you have is a book of people who seem so composed, so calm, so cool and collected. There was this incredible strength, and you say, where did it come from? I imagine that Peter and them ran into these problems and they said, yo, what should we do since Christ isn't here? And they probably think, well, if history is an indicator of the future, we're gonna work really hard and we're not gonna solve the problems anyways, but then I think that it clicks. And they say, no, 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 but but wait a minute. He is here. He rose from the grave. He is not dead. He's standing here. We are people that have this great need and our neediness is not a liability. We can tap into that power the same way that he did. And then I think they look around and say, hey, y'all, why should we trouble ourselves? When we can just trouble him and Christ says, church, for me, it's no trouble at all. We have access to amazing power where our neediness is not a liability, church. It is an asset. Y'all are the testimony of that. I remember Haydn talking about what he hoped that God would do in Vegas and the prayers. I remember some of the roadblocks, some of the no's that felt like things wouldn't work out. And look at what God did with the no's. You have power beyond your wildest dreams, but it comes with you realizing that your neediness is not a liability. It's an asset. True strength comes from total and complete surrender. Let's surrender our hearts right now to the Lord. Our Father, we come to you and we ask that you would remind us of the blessing and joy of surrender. Jesus, would you free us from the lie that we have to be strong for everybody. Would you give us the freedom that comes to embrace, that comes from embracing our weakness and seeing your perfect power shine strong. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.